it took me a while not to lay a lot of shoulds on myself about I should be better at this. I should be better at moving toward my demons. I should be better at whatever it is, right? Brandon's work on self-acceptance, but also Buddhists, they all emphasize this message of easing up on myself, taking my foot off the accelerator of that critic inside myself. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. How's everybody doing? Well, first of all, is this the first show of the year or is this our second one, Patrick? First of 2023. Welcome. Have you ever been on our podcast? No, I this have is not. Your, I, see, that's see, that's so amazing to me because we've had so much discussion over through our Thursday group. And and, uh, you know, that, that I know you so well from from these discussions. But I, I was occurring to me this morning. I, thought, I don't think you've ever been on the podcast. So, no. so welcome. Welcome. Thank you. And I very much appreciate the invitation. I, I had a few health issues, a couple of health issues in the past year that not because you guys haven't extended the invitation, but I haven't been able to accept it. But now I am and very glad to be here. You're somebody I, I love very much. And I have, and, and if we, if we're going to, if we're going to define meeting as being in the same room together, I've never met you. <laughs> and I have laughed. I've laughed so many times, Tom, at the text messages and the emails and so on that you have sent me and know I have many more to look forward to, man. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you're that. absolutely welcome. Roger, can I start by asking, um, how do you come by this work? Tell us a bit about yourself. I read a book during my undergraduate years back in Indiana, of all places, uh, about 1969 or 1970, a book called The Psychology of Self-Esteem by a psychologist uh, and self-esteem theorist named Nathaniel Brandon. And that book had a big effect on me. Um, I struggled a lot with self-criticism. I struggled a lot with perfectionism. Um, and I'd never read about the topic of self-esteem uh, before. And its importance to our happiness, its importance to our life. Uh, and in fact, that book had such a big effect on me that I decided to move to California and undertake personal psychotherapy for me with, with Nathaniel, uh, which is what I did in 1972. And wow, that's, spent that's, that's, I've heard you say that before. That's huge though. I mean, I mean, that's, we, we talk so much in our, in recovery about willingness. I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful piece of willingness there, Roger. <laughs> I mean, you, you find somebody that you believe you can learn something from that you feel like you, you feel drawn to in that way. And, and you move across the fucking country. To, well, to do that. keep in mind, keep in mind, I was going from Indiana to California and I'd had a lot of thoughts about living in California. And you're, was a, you're, you're thinking you if you were if you were in California and, and, and Brandon was in in Indiana, you might not have gone. Might have given it a second thought, but I would have probably still done it. You make a good point. Okay. I appreciate okay. that, Tom. I appreciate that, man. You make a good point. All right. So. Uh, so I packed up my bags and headed for L.A. And uh, most of the time I've been here ever since, ever since 1972, uh, did two or three years of group psychotherapy with him and participated in a training seminar, informal training seminar he had. And then in the 1980s, I went back and worked with him for a couple more years. Uh, so it was my own deficiency of self-esteem, Patrick, that uh, that prompted me as well as uh, the possibility of, uh, of improving my, my self-esteem that, that led me to that. And then through, through Nathaniel, I met a, um, a man, a PhD psychologist named Chuck Kelly. And Chuck did a kind of work with people called body-oriented work. Now, I would call it therapy, but Chuck didn't look at it that way. The humanistic psychology movement and the personal growth movement was real big in the early, early and mid seventies. And Chuck looked at all the work he did as personal growth work, as mm -hmm. experiential education, rather than as the medical model would say, as psychotherapy. And I really bought into that model and have used it for most of my work over the last uh, almost 50 years now. But, but I took a couple workshops from Chuck Kelly about using breathing and movement and so on to access emotions. And I was blown away by my obliviousness to all the feelings that were jammed up inside of me. Anger, wow. sadness, 
fear. Uh, and that made such an impression on me that I, I did a two-year training program that, that Chuck offered in what he called Radix, Radix work, body-oriented emotional release work. And for 15 or 18 years, that was the primary work that I did. But self-esteem work has always been a central part of, of the work I've done on myself and the work I've done with my clients. So that's, that's a long-winded answer to your answer to your question, Patrick. I think it's a very concise answer considering all that that might include, uh, and, and, um, experiential education. I've, I've just, you know, I just have adopted that forever for me right now. I'm so much more impressed with calling what, what we do that than, than, uh, you know, anything that's really more related to a medical model, but, you know, I just want to say before, you know, and I know Alan has known you much longer than I have, and, and you guys have been working together for years. So it's, it's I'm I'm the I'm the newcomer to this 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 group of relationships. But it's you're such a as I've listened to you talk about this, and this is my, my impression of you anyway. You are such a willing student. You you are you know, you, you you and I bat bat around the idea of humility a lot, and and it's like and we, I think we 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 kind of we kind of talk to even notice each other's in that. In, in fact, probably you know we're arrogant about our humility. You and I, you know, you have a very good instinct about what it is that fits for you, and when you go with it, man, you go all in. <laughs> I love that. I love that about your story. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. I think that's true. As I reflect on it, as I hear, mm-hmm. first of all, I got a little chill when you said that. I really do appreciate mm-hmm. the, those words because mm-hmm. I do. Y- you know what it is? It's just curiosity, mm-hmm. Tom, and it's and it's about what resonates for me. And yeah. I think this is what it's about for for most of us as people. Yeah, it's about what speaks to me, right? It's about and. Uh, and I could see and still see at age 73, I think, let's see for, yeah, 73, Mm -hmm. um, still see the ways in which my, um, my self-centeredness as, as, as psychologists would say, which I'm not one of my, my narcissistic tendencies harm me, harm other people. And out of that awareness of harm and pain that I've caused myself and caused others, others that, the theme of humility, and I know it's a big theme for you and for Alan mm-hmm, as well, mm-hmm. has been uppermost in my mind for decades. And so it's led me to look a lot into Buddhism and other spiritual approaches to, to growth. Um, but it's, it's, it's come out of an awareness of, of, I'm just curious to learn. I'm curious to know things, right? And, uh, yeah. and especially know things that will help people, know things that will help people feel less conflicted, be in less pain and, and feel happier in their lives. So, but I do appreciate you saying that because I, mm-hmm. I do think that's true, man. We move towards our demons is, is what I hear you talking about. You know, yeah. I have a sign on my wall. One of my little nutshells says, move towards your demons. They take their power from your retreat. I live by it very imperfectly. I still avoid and evade and distract and deflect mm-hmm. and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and so I don't want to convey an impression to to you guys or to our listeners that 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 that's an all or nothing path. It's it's like self-esteem. It's like emotional sobriety. Some days are better than others. Right. Some mm-hmm. some areas mm-hmm. of my life are better than others. So I just I just want to convey that message to everyone that that the less evading and avoiding and denial I engage in, the better for me and for those I'm in relationship with, right? The, the more my self-esteem grows, the better I feel about myself, but that's not to say it's easy. Uh, that's not to say it's simple, right? Uh, the, the desire to avoid pain is a pretty deeply ingrained, uh, or discomfort is a pretty deeply ingrained desire for me and for, for, for other people I know. So that's where self-acceptance and the big focus on self-acceptance comes from, for me is, it took me a while not to lay a lot of shoulds on myself about I should be better at this. I should be better at moving toward my demons. I should be better at whatever it is, right? Brandon's work on self-acceptance, but also Buddhists, they all emphasize this message of easing up on myself, taking my foot off the accelerator of that critic inside myself. That's another big piece of it for me. Yeah. 
At the head, uh, can I just ask, uh, and this question goes to any and all of you, how does emotional sobriety and self-esteem fit together? How do you describe that? Well, I think that's, let's do that in a second, Patrick. I was going to ask Roger, would you define self-esteem as you see it, Raj? Because there's a lot of people that don't understand that concept and they confuse it with self-concept. In simplest terms, Alan, my self-esteem is how I feel about myself, right? I mean, in the simplest possible terms, it's how I feel about myself. And again, as I was saying a minute ago, that varies from period to period in my life. That varies from period to period in my day at a very superficial level, right? It varies according to which area of my life I'm, at, I'm functioning in, at work or at play or in relationship. But fundamentally, self-esteem, most simply put, is how do I feel about myself? Do I, do I like myself most of the time? Am I on my side most of the time in my life? Or more often than not, am I against myself? Am I critical of myself? And am I, am I disliking who I am? Um, my, my mentor, who I mentioned, um, his formal definition was something like, and that's Nathaniel Brandon again, was something like self-esteem is the disposition to experience oneself as competent to deal with the basic challenges of life and that means paying the rent, right? That means communicating with my spouse. That means finding work and being able to show up at work. That means, you know, being able to figure out what's important to me and what's not. And the second part is, and as being worthy of happiness. So that's where the self-respect and the self-worth piece comes in. And I relate to that, but for me personally, honestly, I like to keep it simple. The idea of how I feel about myself is what I operate from most of the day. And, and the piece that does speak to me a lot is the self-respect piece. Is this decision I'm about to make or is this choice I'm about to make, is it going to raise my sense of self-respect or is it going to diminish my sense of self-respect? So uh, we talk about self-esteem as being the evaluative component of our self-concept. And what's self-concept? Well, that's my thoughts and my images of who I am, right? It, it's my physical characteristics. It's my behavioral characteristics. It's my psychological and emotional characteristics. Self-concept is just what it says. It's my idea. If it's an image, I call that my, in my head. I call that my self-image. If it's in words in my head, a verbal description, I call that my self-concept. Um, and self-esteem is the evaluative component of that. <laughs> you know, as you were talking, I just was mm. realizing that self-esteem really, there, there's two like components to it, like, or two elements to it or experiences to it. One is a baseline, how I feel about myself in general, right? Yeah. Right. And then what you were talking, Raj, day by day or moment by moment, I can either rise above that baseline or fall well below it. But it seems like there is a, what, a, a, a state that goes across time in the situations, and, and, and it, which is an interesting thing, because even if somebody feels good about one particular thing that they've just done, there has to be some work to integrate that to change your self-esteem. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. I, I do have a sense, but it's the same with personality, right? It's the same with emotional sobriety. It's yeah. not all or nothing. It's not the yeah. same all the time. No. And fortunately for us, the areas we're unhappy about with them, we can improve them, right? We can change them. A lot of that, as you and I talk about a lot, and Tom, comes about through extending a lot more acceptance toward ourselves in the way that we are, rather than judgment and criticalness toward that. Yeah. But I agree, there is a kind of what we could call a baseline level of my sense of self-worth, self-respect, and self-confidence. Um, and it varies. It's not black and white. It's not all or nothing. Please don't demand of yourself that you feel great about yourself all the time. As Tom just said, a lot of our most important learning and growth is going to come from the areas we don't feel good about. It runs right down the center of us. And each day is about how congruent we can be with that 
it, it really involves value value system, right? It being and, and, and that begins with understanding what our value system is. And a lot of people, what I've discovered is, is when you talk about, because, because, you know, one of the best ways I know how to get in touch with, with who we are and which is very much associated with emotional sobriety and self-esteem is to, to, to ask the, the question that we've been trained away from in our culture, which is what do I want? You know, cause we've been taught, yeah. Oh, that's selfish. That's a bad thing. It's like, no, it's yeah. not what you want. It'll tell you so much about who you are. And if yeah. you can, go toward that and the more clear we are on what is important to us because that's what that question is what's important yeah. to you the more we the more congruent we live with that you know live to that each day is determines our level of success and like what you've you've set the stage very well for us today uh, uh roger with the idea of and by the way i want to make it clear for everybody here no not one of us have ever thought you were you were perfect it never has occurred to me once it's it's like and i trust i trust the same from you it's it's like <laughs> but the idea the idea of of trying to it's that breath counting meditation analogy it's like i'm going to lose my place in my breath count and i got to come back and re and, and you know and yeah. re-engage and reconnect pain is a tremendous motivator like you say it'll move us toward the things that we need but it also it also that pain also uh is, is a motivator and a fuel for our defenses so there's that battle to, to be had in our minds exactly exactly huh i love your emphasis on values yeah Tom, because that's what I go to over and over again, sometimes consciously, sometimes looking back, it's more subconscious or, or unconscious. But um, yeah. that's the guiding point, right? You talk about what's important. I think uh, the way I think of it often is what's important. I also think about what matters to me and what yes. has me and what has meaning for me, what what's meaningful for me and what's not those questions. What do I value? What's what's mm -hmm. important to me, what matters to me, uh, what's meaningful to me. Those are all questions that keep me on course, yeah. right? That right. keep me on course in my decision making and in the words I choose. Um, you know, a big part of emotional sobriety and Patrick had asked us to to talk about the connection. Um, Alan, you, you say it very well in, in your books um, uh, that emotional sobriety involves our, our relationship to our emotions, right? To, to the fact that we want to be aware of our feelings and, and able to experience them and express them. But as you talk about it, not, not give our emotions privilege, right? Not let our emotions be the decision makers primarily in our lives. And that's, that's what I think it's about. Oftentimes we need and that's where consulting my values and what's important and what matters most, that's what helps me connect to the part of myself that's not going to let my feelings entirely run my life at certain points, whether it's my resentment or my anxiety. Mm -hmm. And believe me, I have, I have grappled and still at times grapple with all of those feelings in my life. The focus on values and meaning is, is, is very important. I think, Tom, very important. Well, even, even the very beginning of that point, it just occurs to me as we we're talking that is a challenge of, of self-esteem or would, and today I'm doing pretty well, but it's like, it, certainly I think back in my, my, my recovery path, it's, it's like, it would have been a, I would have been a major challenge that I wouldn't even have recognized. And that is even to, even to acknowledge that what I want, what, 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 somebody asked me the question, what matters to you most, even, even to, to, to be able to, to formulate that and state that with, with some confidence basically requires some self-esteem because yeah. because it says i because because then we got to chat let's do the, the big question is do i matter <laughs> because <laughs> so many how many people we work with we, we go down that ladder you know just a few rungs it's like i don't matter right i don't deserve this i don't count i don't matter and a lot yeah. of us to me, all of us grew up feeling that way about certain areas of our lives, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on yep. our family of origin experiences. And I don't believe we're locked into those experiences. But, but lately, I've been on this thing with, with my clients of, you know, it, it couldn't be the case that almost all of us are left with really significant unresolved issues from our childhoods 
if it was an accident, <laughs> okay? It's right. like almost all of us are left with really powerful, really mm-hmm. uh, strong, uh, I'll be kind and say unhelpful patterns mm-hmm. of, of thinking and feeling and behaving. Uh, a, a stronger way to put it would be really limiting or damaging or even destructive, right? Patterns of thinking and feeling. So it's like one of the things that leads me toward in my thinking is, God, what if a large part of the purpose of my life as an adult is just to work as much of that stuff out as possible? Not perfectly, ever. Mm -hmm. I view it as layers of an onion, right? I never, quote, get there in terms of of anytime I think I'm done with something, life has a way of showing me I'm not. Often quite soon after I think Yeah, never dust off your hands, man. It's like... (laughs) Go ahead. But that doesn't mean progress is not possible. And it doesn't mean it doesn't make a huge difference in the quality of my life as I make progress, because it does. And you mentioned the importance of, of being able to be aware of what I want and express what I want. And so many of us don't feel okay about doing that, Tom. We don't feel we have a right. Uh, we feel we're being too selfish. Our Judeo-Christian ethic in this country can play into that. And I don't see it that way. Because, see, the piece that's left out of that is part of what I want is for you to be happy. Yes. Part of what I want is for Alan to be happy. Part of what I want is for people I love and people I don't even know <laughs> to have as good a life as they can be having. And that's something that's selfish to me. Mm-hmm. I want those things for myself as well. But who I am includes my relationship with you, includes yeah. my relationship with Alan. And, mm-hmm. and so to me, it, they're all pieces of the same pot. All, all in the mm-hmm. same pot, you know, mm-hmm. you, I don't like to artificially separate those things out. And yeah, sometimes the emphasis needs to be more on what I want at a certain point or moment in my life. Sometimes it, it may need to be more on, on what you want. But to me, if I come from a position, um, Alan talks a lot about Eric, Eric Fromm and mm-hmm. that Relationships involve union with the preservation of integrity, is what Fromm said. And what he meant by that is connection, but a connection in which I stay true to me, right? With the preservation of integrity. And I think that is a beautifully concise way of saying it, that and Alan talks a lot about it in terms of differentiation as well. Mm-hmm. But that I want to be deeply connected to you, but I also want to be deeply connected to myself. And almost always, almost always in my experience, there is a path to both. There is a path to working out conflicts, to working out differences, to working out disagreements, that that can happen. Union, mm-hmm. connection, cooperation with the preservation of autonomy, integrity. I thought I'd throw it out there. Um, Are you a 12-step guy, Roger? Are you in recovery or? Actually, no, I'm not. Um, Mm -hmm. I've primarily, uh, through my long-time association with with Alan and others, uh, but primarily with Alan, uh, probably, you know, at least half of my clients over the decades have been people who are in recovery. I I do uh, and have worked and currently work in uh, treatment programs, doing groups and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I am not personally in recovery. And um, that's something when I meet with clients individually or my groups at the treatment program I work with. It's something I mentioned at the beginning of my groups, because I've been aware my entire career that while obviously I do feel I have something of value, to offer my clients who are in recovery or clients who are in treatment, in treatment programs, it's not the same as having lived that experience. In fact, the way I put it to clients is at an experiential level, you know way more about addiction and about recovery 
than I do at an well, experiential and an you, experiential. You don't, you don't have the basis for experiential empathy. You have you have the you have empathy from other other ways, but not from that. And by the way, it, I just want to I want to make this point real clear that you how long have you known Alan? Since 1979, I believe, Al, is that right? It's it's, it's to your credit that that has not driven you to drink. (laughs) (laughs) I've been saving him a seat for that very reason. I've made Roger Roger an honorary member of AA many, many years ago. There you go. There's a seat for him. There's a seat for him. I got (laughs) to say, man, you have no idea how true that is that is okay. you have has no, no idea but, but, but here's here's here yeah. i i have had conversations with alan in person and countless more in my mind uh around <laughs> that very theme tom uh, but here's the thing here's the thing i'm always aware of it's amazing in all those years that i haven't driven alan to drink too. <laughs> Right, a testimony Al? to my recovery. See? Oh, right, man. right, Al. It's, it's and reciprocal. I'm not, oh, I'm listen, not blowing. I'm not no, blowing smoke true. because Alan's Alan's tendencies and my tendencies as as people as personalities very often conflict with each other. The fact we've been able to work with each other as much as we have and struggle, and I mean freaking struggle from both sides, his and mine, to do that union with integrity thing it's like a good marriage is what you're describing is is the idea that that you know sometimes i'll tell i'll tell couples i'm working with that that are you know i'll say look if if, if, from what i can tell the problem definition is that you love each other because because if 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 you didn't the math on this would be very easy you guys should never be in the same place ever (laughs) together it's like it's like because it's just it's just too messed up it's too too much to work through but sometimes there is a connection that is so much deeper and so much more valid. And, and, and in y'all's case, by the way, I just want to say this for everybody who's ever benefited from, from each of you and both of you that thank goodness for that, because out of the, that's a collaboration that, you know, you know, we all have our own ripple effect, but, but the two of you have a ripple effect also, you know, a, colli- a combined ripple effect that has benefited so many people and will continue to, to do that. And that's because you're willing to work on work that stuff out. And I, I love collaboration like that i think there. i mean some days you want you want you don't want to be back back there again but it's like in the bigger picture you kind of just hold on to this thing is like this is this is wonderful and 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 to be to be included to the degree that i've been included in y'all's your all's connection has been is is continues to be an honor to me i just want to say that so well, our, our, our relationship is longer than any of our marriages <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, we've we've been together through several divorces with each other, and and, and it, well, it's a it is a marriage. It's a, it's like no, the, the other it, thing about this that I would say, and and this is a result of what I think is a healthy relationship too, is I have grown considerably through the years. I'm a much better therapist because of Roger. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. he brought in a focus and an understanding and a presence that was all along. He was so much more focused on the relational dynamic or component of, of psychotherapy than I was. I think I've caught up with him recently, mm-hmm. but, but that he brought that to me and the emotional, the body work that I, I witnessed you do Raj. I mean, you know, to me, you were one of the, you know, most prominent body therapist oriented therapists. You had such a gift to be with people and to be present with their pain and suffering and how strong your empathy was. And you, you created such a safe container. I mean, all that stuff, I have learned a tremendous mm-hmm. amount through the years. I'm a much better psychotherapist as yeah. well as a better person as a result of it. And speaking wow. of that, that body work, isn't that amazing? My my wife and I used to work together before we decided we would get divorced if we kept doing it. But but it's it's like and she's she's very body focused and it's like it's to me it's like as a magician I always say it's like watching a good magic trick because it's like you you know and I bet you can identify with this. Dee Dee would start working with somebody. And I would go like, I don't know what, she, what is she talking about? What is she doing? And then in a moment later, she asked somebody, ask somebody a, 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 just the simplest question or ask them to put their body in a particular position. And all of a sudden everything is there. And it's like, it's just, it's so impressive. 
you know, I want to go back to something you said earlier, Tom, because I, I've I've given this a second thought. Because I mm-hmm. used to say exactly what you said. It's about the work is inside out, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I I think it goes both ways. Okay. See, I think that also when you focus on dealing with a relationship and learning in that relationship, it helps you change your relationship with yourself. Oh, absolutely. See, yes, it's right. it's isomorphic. Right. See, I, I yeah. think that, yep. that when instead of dividing it up like this, it's like the body-mind discussion, the myth right. that they're separate. They're not separate. I mm-hmm. mean, they are the same. They're all a part of a whole, right? So that if we think of it this way, if I, you know, because I see that with Roger, there's been things in our relationship that he's confronted me with and that I took a look at and it changed my relationship with myself. It helped me yeah. look at myself in a different way. And I think vice versa. Yeah, I think yeah. the same thing happened with Rod. So I think that 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 change, and this is the exciting thing about it, is change is a result of our relationship to the experience we're having, whether it's with ourselves or someone else. It's the relationship we're having with that experience. Am I curious? Am I open? Am I willing to be authentic and, and honest about how this is impacting me and, and, yes. ex- and curious about it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. all of those things can lead to more and more awareness. As my awareness grows, you know, now I become aware of uh, more aware of who I'm not rather than who I am. Right. And, but then that opens the door to experiment with now trying some things on differently. You know, you even said it once. I loved when you said one time is that learning goes through those phases of you start out unconsciously incompetent. Mm -hmm, Then you become mm -hmm. aware of how incompetent or ignorant you are. Then you start to consciously focus on acquiring Mm -hmm. some new skills, new capacity, Mm -hmm. new awareness. And then if you stay grounded in that, it becomes an unconscious competence. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the arc of psychotherapy, isn't it? It's yeah. the arc of emotional sobriety. It's the arc of right. the 12 step work. And it's the arc of learning. It's, a, it's, it's the it's arc learning. of learning. See, I think, you know, Fritz Perl said this, and I always appreciate it. He says, learning is about the discovery of new possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was a wonderful, simple way of describing it. That's beautiful. And that's what we, we experience emotional sobriety is. It's just an, a great, you know, construct to look at our life through, to, to you know, understand our reactions and, and to use to help us on that path of our growth. Well, what you're doing with that right now for me is you're you're doing the uh, called the pan back so that you, you pan back and see the bigger, you know, just yeah. go go another level back and, and get, get the bigger picture. And so when you say, okay, here's a, here's a, here's another one where we don't maybe have to make the, make the division. That's really just a matter of language of inside out or outside in you're talking more holistic, holistically. I mean, you, you, you bring to mind listening to Alan Watts, you know, who's one of my favorite person, people to, 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 I like reading him, but I like listening to his, he has so many lectures on online. I love listening to him because because I just not only understand some things, but I feel that wholeness that you're describing. I think one of the things that the, that the Gestalt psychologists, I'm not talking about the therapist now, but the Gestalt psychologists oh. saw is that we experience, we always want things to get completed, right? There's this yeah. movement yeah. towards completion because see, I understood that as always a drive towards wholeness, Right. We mm-hmm. want things to fit together to make sense. And so it makes sense to me that within me is that force that's moving me in that direction through our whole life. You talked about it, you know, when we talk about, you know, you know, it, some people think of a concept as God as a universal Christ, mm-hmm. meaning that we're moving towards this wholeness, right? Mm-hmm. Christ is mm-hmm. not just the embodiment of, of Jesus Christ that showed up, but there's a universal Christ that that Father Richard Rohr, you know, person, mm-hmm. a, a theologist that I just love his work. But that this movement towards this wholeness, towards this holiness, some people call mm-hmm. it. Yeah. It's yeah. so powerful, man. I see it in my life. I see that that's the force that gets unleashed with people coming to recovery. They now yeah. start to move towards actualizing their potential towards moving towards wholeness, towards becoming what they can be. 
it's so look it's kept me as excited about this business that we're in and in this whole field of study you know for now what almost you know over five decades mm-hmm. well uh roger when you talked about the pre- preservation of integrity um for yeah. me um the physical sobriety and the working of the steps kind of acquainted me or reacquainted me with what my integrity is and yeah. now that uh i've um done that bit of work um listening to guys like you and learning about emotional sobriety and getting in touch with that my emotions i consider that the next leg of recovery which i'm sure will take me through the rest of my life well it is all of these are lifelong projects (laughs) looking Mm -hmm. at my self-esteem trying to grow my emotional sobriety they're they're all lifelong projects Uh, i wanted to add to what alan said another word we use for that wholeness or holiness is what integrity that's right yes right that's another word that we use for that kind of wholeness that we have a deeply ingrained intrinsic drive toward uh and uh and that's one of the um uh, brandon talks about six pillars of self-esteem functioning with integrity is one of those six pillars right one of one of those six pillars so I appreciate you saying that, Patrick, because that it's so true. Um, these uh, these concepts, whether it's self-esteem or even emotional sobriety, uh, from my point of view, they're they're applicable to people in recovery who are who are struggling with addiction and recovery from addiction. They're applicable to equally applicable to applicable to people who are struggling in other areas of their life unrelated to to, to tr- problems with addiction and recovery from addiction. Um, and that's just the model that I use. That's why I like the personal growth model so much mm-hmm. because you just keep learning. You just well, keep me, learning, right? Let me say this about that because one of the things I've said, this goes to, to the bigger picture of emotional sobriety. I've said for years, what, 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 the people, what do people do who aren't, who aren't fucked up like I am? What do people do who aren't a- a- alcoholics? How do they learn shit? And of course, there's Alan on those things. My addiction was not alcohol. Ultimately, it's addiction to believing and obeying what that little voice told me. Yeah. You know, we all have that. It can be about something else entirely than, than the substance, you know, but we're all addicts. My addiction, much of my life, and Alan can deeply attest to this, I mean, let me give a, a personal example with regard to the self-esteem piece and tying it to emotional sobriety. Um, I was raised in, you know, I lived in rural Indiana, living on a farm till I was eight. And we moved into the thriving metropolis of a thousand people when I was about eight until I was 17. Right. Uh, and my dad was the principal of the school that I went to in this small town. And my mom literally told us kids um, more than once, uh, remember, other kids in this community are looking to you kids Hmm. to be models about how to behave, about how to act. And my mom was not an ogre. She was a sweetheart of a human being, one of the most loving, giving, consistently loving and giving human beings I've, I've ever known, maybe the most that I've ever known personally. But but she was very concerned about what other people thought, thought of her, right? Mm-hmm. And so she instilled that. My older brother was a defiant member of the family, so he, he acted out. He held on to his anger. But the other three of us, more than not, were, went the compliant direction, right? The cooperative mm-hmm. direction. And so I have had an incredible amount of work to do, you know, identifying what could be called my codependent tendencies, my tendencies to put other people before myself, still working on that every day. It has some very positive aspects. I tend to, mm-hmm. to care a lot about other people. I tend to be tuned into feelings a lot because that's what you do if you're concerned about not only what other people think of me, but, but you know, how to help them, how to be a, how to be a value to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've had an incredible amount of work and, and it's, it was interesting. Nathaniel did very little work with people explicitly on self-esteem. Now, if you, if you read his books, like the six pillars of self-esteem or honoring the self, especially the six pillars of self-esteem and how to raise your self-esteem, they're filled with incomplete sentence exercise, exercises that look 
specifically at self-esteem and the pillars of self-esteem. But in his therapy, people work with people, including me, self-esteem was almost never talked about. He would Mm. just work with people on whatever issues were of concern to them in a way that helped them develop their self-esteem, right? That's, that's the key piece. So I would do a lot of work on what the payoffs were for me about being so focused on other people, what the payoffs were for me about putting myself last, right? Rather than Mm -hmm. first and at times Mm -hmm. putting myself first. So, and emotional sobriety has a lot to say about that, about encouraging me to include myself is how I think of it. Not exclusively, but to include myself in my life, in what matters to me, to include my wants, the word you used a while ago, Tom, in in my life Mm -hmm. more. Still a process, still very much in process with all of that, but uh, but that's that's part of this puzzle is is realizing that we all have personal issues we we struggle with, and we can look at them all as patterns of addiction, addictive addicted to certain ways of thinking, addicted to certain ways of feeling, addicted to certain behaviors. So I, I like that slant on it, Tom. Thank you. Okay, here we've done this before, guys. I I, I want to nominate that as a subject matter for uh, for another podcast and invite Roger to come do this do this with us because I think I think that's that by itself is a, is a wonder. I mean, I think it's an ongoing subject for all of us, but I think it's really deserves some 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 focus uh, because it takes people to practical application. Well, that's that's the thing. It does. Right away, like I say, Nathaniel wouldn't lecture. He he wouldn't lecture people. His entire therapy approach was about he would do a lot of incomplete sentence stems, giving them to people like right now I'm feeling or the good thing about putting myself last is or the way I benefit from minimizing my importance is on and on and on. But, But there was never a doubt. The client's the one doing the work. Right. And it's not. So. I would, I would be up for that. I would, I would appreciate it and enjoy that. What you're describing is a therapist who doesn't sell therapy off the rack. You know, it's like, it's always, it's, you know, it's Carl. I'm not quoting him precisely probably, but Carl Jung talked about, about, uh, you know, before each client, he would try to forget everything he knew. Well, that's my goal as it is with you and with Alan. Mm -hmm. I know, Mm -hmm. I know that Mm -hmm. from, from experiencing you guys and especially Alan over so many decades. Um, mm. I, I'm aware of a part of myself that wants to wants to tie the emotional sobriety piece in more right now as I'm sitting here with you guys okay. to Good. to the to yeah. the self mm. to the self-esteem mm. piece. And and I think that and as as we've commented frequently, um, because in the Thursday the Thursday night meeting uh, that Alan created and that uh, that you and I, Tom, are discussing that mm-hmm. along with Herb mm-hmm. Kagan. Um, we talk about the commonalities a lot between self-esteem and, and emotional sobriety. And to me, there have to be a lot of commonalities because they're both concerned with growing ourselves up, right? Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, they're both concerned with emotional, psychological maturation and mm-hmm. to some extent, spiritual maturation, mm-hmm. I think as well. Not that, not that any of us, to me, ever become authorities about that. Or we're all in process, to me, with all of that all the time. Um, but that, to me, there's, it's hard to say that about anything that it would raise our self-esteem, but it would damage our emotional sobriety. <laughs> or with anything, with any behavior right. or way of thinking like, or, or being less emotionally dependent or our demands and expectations with regard to other people and all the problems those create for us in our life. It's hard to think of anything, for me at least, that I could talk about. Same with emotional sobriety. It's hard to talk about anything that would grow our emotional sobriety that would not also grow our sense of self-esteem, our sense of self-worth and self-confidence and self-respect, our sense of, am I worthy of love? Am I worthy of happiness? So to me, the two ideas of emotional sobriety and on the one hand and self-esteem on the other um, are deeply integrated. Uh, 
Nathaniel had this idea of reciprocal causation that the more things we do that build our self-esteem and the higher our self-esteem becomes, the more things we do that build our self-esteem, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's a cycle, right? Or a spiral, yeah. uh, if you want to look at it that way. Mm -hmm. And it's the same to me with self-esteem and emotional sobriety. Yeah. As I grow in self-responsibility self is a great example. Self-acceptance, living consciously. Those are three of Brandon's six pillars of, of self-esteem. The others are self-assertiveness, then living with integrity and living with purpose, yeah. right? Finding a way to live life that's more meaningful, more purposeful to me. Every one of those practices of self-esteem and the one that Herb Kagan added that Brandon also talked about, they all involve willingness, right? In fact, mm -hmm. they need to involve willingness to, to practice these principles and to practice these concepts, to put them into motion, into our behavior in order for growth to happen. They have a reciprocal effect on one another. Different focus, sometimes different terminology. But to a large extent, we're talking about the same process, yes. the process of growing ourselves up. So I wanted to get that in right before. Yes. Uh, no, yeah. I think it's so important, Raj. I was thinking along those same lines when you were raising a question about how, how emotional sobriety influences our self-esteem and our self-esteem influences our emotional sobriety. Mm -hmm. It's really that synergistic relationship, okay. right? As like you said, you improve when one side, it improves the other side. As that yeah. side improves, it improves your emotional sobriety. And so that's that real cool thing on how, you know, we talk about these negative feedback loops and how people yeah. get into these downward spirals. But it's also true the other way. These things start to reinforce one another and, and we start growing ourselves in some cool ways. Well, that's just what Tom said. The more I begin to realize that a lot of the messages I absorbed about myself growing up are just yes. not true. Yes. And that I absorb them and believe them. So then they do become self-fulfilling prophecies to me. I, I do behave in ways that reinforce these negative exactly. things. Um, yeah. But the more I begin to challenge those or look at them and reevaluate them, the more my sense of self-worth begins to grow. Well, the more my sense of self-worth begins to grow, the more able I become to express what I want, <laughs> right? And the more I express what I want and yeah. so on. It's that cycle that you were just talking about, but that's, a, that's just one, one example of it. So, yeah. That's beautiful. Well, it's been wonderful having you on the show today, Raj. I've enjoyed Amen. the heck out of it, guys. Thanks so much mm -hmm. for the invite. I really do appreciate it. And I, I've had a wonderful time, as I hope has been apparent. So thank you. Yeah, Patrick, and Roger, I just... How we have we done, Patrick? You've done wonderfully. And I just wanted to clear this up for our listeners. Um, mm -hmm. Roger, who's better at tennis, you or Alan? <laughs> as, as befits our, our history... Uh, when we first started, I had a lot more experience, a lot more experience as a tennis player than Alan did. And I was quite a bit better than Alan was. But Alan being Alan, as those of you who know him well might imagine, uh, he uh, has worked on his tennis game and took lessons over a couple of decades and became a substantially better player than I have ever been. So that's been the progression of our uh, of our tennis history. The last 20 years or so, I have not played. Uh, Alan continues to play a little bit at times and still enjoys it. But that's a great question. That's a great question, Pat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dr. Berger, care to comment? Pat Patrick, Roger has made many tennis professionals quite wealthy. <laughs> I, I come off the court beat up by him. And I think Jeff Martinez was when we were up at UC Davis. I think Jeff Martinez was up there teaching in the area and uh, and I would go take lessons with Jeff. Jeff, he, he did it again. He said, I'm going to beat you. You're not going to win another point. And I didn't win another point. And Jeff said, mm -hmm. man, he gets in your head, doesn't he? I say, oh, God, he does. But, but not only did he get in my head, he had the ability to back it up. Patrick, <laughs> his, forehand, his forehand was was a thing of beauty. He could hit clean winners from almost any place on the court with that forehand. 
Now, uh, his backhand, if I could ever get it to his backhand, <laughs> that was a little shaky. I could wear it. Very, very shaky. Very but shaky. I'll tell you, he had, he was so damn fast because, you know, he was, he was a great, he's a great athlete. He could cover that whole court with his forehand. Long ago yeah. and far away, guys. Long ago yeah. and far away. Ancient history. But thank you, Alan. Thank you. But remember that second part I said. Alan worked hard at his game and became and still is a really accomplished uh, uh, player. I, I, well, you know, it's all a metaphor for life to me. You know, mm -hmm. that's what this whole thing is. It's yeah. I remember doing a workshop with uh, Billy Jean King. We were speaking together down in San Diego to a bunch of juniors. And I love how she got up and says, look, you guys, you may not understand what this means now, but tennis is a metaphor for your life. How you're showing up here is how you show up in your life. Mm -hmm. what you do on the court is what you're going to do in your life what your attitude is how you approach this game is how you approach your life i, I i'm i'm a Beautiful. big fan of hers and i she was so right mm -hmm. out with that mm -hmm. i can't show this to you guys i'm looking at a picture of you and and me alan when we finished second in a tournament at alta vista i still have that on the shelf and i'm looking at it at wow. this moment man Very so cool. we were we were partners in our differences even then change your life Change your myth Cultivate your narrative With whomever you're with Then with glass in hand And children on one knee Bring some stories Bring your stories Back to me It ain't a crime To be a human Never be ashamed To be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing Will entertain me like nobody else So here's to us, my old friends Until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again With glass in hand and children on me Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me